0: You're listening to The Razor's Edge. I'm Daniel Schwartzman, co-host of this podcast, along with Akram's Razor, Seeking Alpha author. Each episode of The Razor's Edge features a discussion about the markets and specific investment ideas. We usually start with ideas that Akram has been studying or investing in personally and is part of the Seeking Alpha Marketplace service, also called The Razor's Edge, which builds on his two decades plus of trading and investing experience, including some of the best deep dive research you can find on the street. I then bring my generalist take from a decade of investing and years of reviewing ideas on Seeking Alpha and seeing how they play out. So we start there and look into the specific ideas, how they might play out, what research went into them, or whatever else may catch our attention as useful for investors' consideration. If you're interested in more of those ideas as well as up-to-date developments and the chance to swap ideas with Ackerman and other investors directly, you can check out Akram's Marketplace service by typing Akram's Razor or The Razor's Edge on the search bar on Seeking Alpha or going to the marketplace. If you want to just get these conversations, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts and make sure to leave us a review or share with a friend. We'd be truly grateful. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure, The Razor's Edge is a podcast on Seeking Alpha's the Investing Edge channel. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose our positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to a given episode. Hi, everybody. Today we're talking the bankruptcy market, which would mean something different in just about every period I'm aware of in market history until the past couple weeks. We're recording this on Monday, June 15th, a day that may live on in infamy, at least for market observers. Hertz filed to offer $500 million worth in equity despite filing for bankruptcy three weeks ago and having what appears to be a clear negative equity position. Hertz is the most prominent example of the day trading bankruptcy phenomenon, perhaps a trendsetter, and there's a lot more going on in terms of the broader economy. So to make heads of this, we're speaking with Sam Zugayer, Managing Director at Berenson, investing banking and private equity firm that participates in restructuring and investing in emerging from bankruptcy stocks. We're asking him about what he's seeing and hearing and how he explains as much as anybody can what's going on right now. So Sam, good morning. Good morning. Let's just start, I guess give us a little bit of background first, what exactly is Berenson's role normally in this process? Where do you, you guys usually come into the bankruptcy restructuring scene? Sure.
1: So, so Berenson and Company is a, is a merchant banking platform headquartered in New York. So it's a traditional kind of investment banking practice on the advisory side in the main. It's an M and A advisory firm, but we also have a financing practice as well as a restructuring practice, which I oversee. In the restructuring practice, we usually get involved on the advisory side with our clients when companies start experiencing signs of duress or, you know, hopefully on the, on, in the early stages where you can actually negotiate some type of out of court settlement with the various stakeholders from the senior creditors down to the bondholders. And we're usually bought in by the company or the equity. In lots of cases, it's the private equity sponsor who brings us in. And so the in the last 10 years, during the bull market run, I would say most, if not all, 95% of quote unquote restructurings were done out of court. There was some type of settlement amongst the stakeholders and it didn't go into bankruptcy. In this last cycle, you're obviously starting to see a lot more bankruptcies as the weight of this COVID-19 trauma kind of collapses a lot of these businesses. And so we then, in those instances, will shepherd our clients through the bankruptcy process, pre-petition, kind of getting organized for bankruptcy and then going in, getting your financing in order, things like dip financing. And then while you're in, just prosecuting the bankruptcy, whether that is organizing a sale through a 363 process or a plan of reorganization process, and then eventually exit. So that is you know, what we do in terms of of helping our clients kind of get through
0: the entire process so you said this, but just to dry it out you're you're normally aligned with management and equity holders sort of by definition those are your usually your clients
1: yeah, you are and I don't know how wonky you guys want to get here, but there's fiduciary obligations that shift as the company starts experiencing distress you know when you're a healthy company, your fiduciary obligation is to your shareholders and to drive as much value as possible for your shareholders. When you enter what's called a zone of insolvency, where you start getting to the point where you can't meet your short-term obligations, your fiduciary obligation per the law shifts towards your stakeholders, and that includes your debt, employees, vendors, so on and so forth. So as an advisor, our fiduciary obligation shifts along with that. And as you go into bankruptcy, your fiduciary obligation is really towards driving value to um, it, to service the absolute priority rule of bankruptcy. And, and we can get into that as much detail as you like. So we start off trying to preserve value for our, the equity. Um, but as things deteriorate, then, then your focus starts shifting on preserving value for the enterprise, if it, even if it's at the expense of the equity.
0: Okay, got it. And I think there will be opportunities to jump back into that.
2: Wait, is there any example, though, where you're actually where you're hired by the actual creditors?
1: Yeah, look, um, it look in the large bankruptcies, So let me I know we'll talk about Hertz. So Let's take Hertz. Everybody advisors up. So we, for the most part, Berenson exclusively advises company side. We don't do creditor work, but there's, you know, half our industry, investment bankers, lawyers restructuring practitioners advise the creditors, more than half because you have multiple creditor classes. So, you know, if we advise the company, the likely the senior secured creditors, the banks, will hire their own advisor. And the unsecured, the bondholders, will hire their own advisors, and so on and so forth. And so when you get into bankruptcy, you want to be deemed to be an official class by the judge, which which then allows you to have your legal and financial fees and financial advisory fees reimbursed by the by this estate. Yeah. So so when you go into these cases, you it's a it's it's the wild west. You'll have multiple sets of investment banks advising multiple constituencies, depending on where they sit in the absolute priority waterfall.
0: So we were talking before we started recording about just how different this scene is, and again, obviously the case of Hertz and all these bankruptcy stocks kind of going to the moon is one part of that. But I th- I think you were getting at a more general, there is a lot different about this time as other cycles. Could you just talk a little bit more about what you're seeing and how this 2020s bankruptcy cycle stacks up versus other recent cycles?
1: Sure. So, look. If you kind of superimpose the business cycle onto what's happening here, this one's a bit different. So, I'll take. A, I'll kind of rewind back. If if you look at what happened in the early '90s, in 2000, 2001, 2008, a lot of the the restructuring cycle is kind of it's a slow bleed into a restructuring. Right, the economy starts softening, and then the plane's descending from seventy thousand to fifty thousand to thirty thousand feet, and you kind of see it coming and you kind of prepare for it. And then it just kind of the business cycle kind of plays out. And there's, there's more of an opportunity to prepare for it. And and they tend to be more targeted, focused on certain industries, depending on what's happening at the time. So in 2001, obviously, it was a dot com bubble. In 2008, it was a financial crisis. And so you could manage it, it's manageable in a sense that, you know, you'll, you'll have a spike in unemployment. You'll have all of the characteristics of what happens in a, in the restructuring cycle and kind of a, in a distressed, you know, the two to three distressed part of the business cycle. This one's different in, in that one had an, an 11 year unprecedented bull market run. So you have a, a whole generation of investors that know nothing but bull market companies that have done nothing but grow and then. you know, everything was going great, record unemployment, and then boom, COVID-19 hits and this blunt force trauma inflicted on the broader economy. And so, as I was saying, companies that were perfectly fine in February, lots of cash flow, growing nicely, were implementing their, you know, long-term strategic plans, all of a sudden are finding themselves at the steps of the courthouse. And so, you just can't turn the spigot off for a quarter. And a lot of these businesses went from 50 to 100% reduction in revenue and then kind of shake that off. Now, some, there's going to be some winners for sure. I mean, lots of large tech, other spaces, there's some, there's going to be some losers. But this, this one in particular has, I don't think I, we, I've seen this in, in my career, um, certainly. And, you know, it's still a lot of uncertainty in terms of how we're going to come out of it. And I caution people about getting too enthusiastic about, Whatever job numbers come out in the summer, leading into the fall, or how the stock market improves, because I still, th- I still think we don't know the extent of the damage until companies really start turning back on, furloughed employees start coming back. What's happened to the consumer? What's happened to savings? What structural damage has been done to, to balance sheets during this process? So this one's unique in that I, I think this has the potential to have a real long term, a, a real long term blow. To, to the economy at large.
2: I mean, Sam, you're you're basically, I mean, you know, in my opinion, uh, more of like a financial Swiss Army knife type of guy. And I mean, when you think about the current environment, before we get into Hertz and Chesapeake, for example, the two being in focus, those are actually two industries. Well, you could make the argument: ENP shale has been a freaking mess on and off for the last decade, and Hertz, ride sharing, rental, automotive, low interest financing, all that other crap that contributes. To their problems. But when you think about the big picture macro-wise, you usually have, the unemployment numbers have obviously been a headline and you just kind of hit on something. And I mean, like the focus of this conversation isn't meant to be macro, but you've got 40 million unemployed or, or whatever it is, continuing claims around 22 million. You have a federal reserve that in a span of, let's call it nine to 10 weeks, you know, has almost doubled their balance sheet. It's up like 75%. You have this unemployed um, unemployment situation where the headlines come on, people get on CNBC, they talk about it, whatever. But effectively speaking, the median person filing an unemployment claim, which is what they've been tracking and people get excited about it in the market, is earning 130% of his previous wage, right, through August 1. And I don't know if you saw this morning, Larry Kudlow is out being like, 100% replacement rate creates a disincentive to work. I mean, thank you. A White House economic advisor. But I mean, typically for you in something like this, like you were saying, there's companies that like an Uber or or the airlines. I mean, like, I, I saw the numbers last week. American Airlines is, is down 90% revenue year over year. And I mean, I know, you, I know you've done airline restructuring personally in the past and, and whatnot. You have some experience there. But when you look at these businesses, they're being underridden. When we were looking at Carnival Cruise Lines and, and the announcements came out like a month ago that uh, PIF. And whatever invested it basically was like hey we have enough liquidity to be at zero revenue for 12 months that was the measuring stick in late march early april so you as a distressed person who kind of like in this type of environment you know is usually extremely busy opportunities to make money but like there's these weird disincentives here like like you said structurally we don't know what happens here this is a big social sciences experiment as far as what the fed has done and, and what's going on in stimulus but in the immediate near term You know, the perception is, well, you know, it's stimulus. And as long as no one thinks about the long-term cost, it's so seismic in near-term costs that it it actually causes, let's call it consumption expansion. Because when I tell you you've lost your job, you're not supposed to have a wage that goes up to 130% of what you were making before. And you have all your free time and you can sit at home and shop on Amazon and and watch Netflix and and, and order food and then get yourself a Komodo grill. When you think of it from that standpoint, would you say as this has been playing out and, and companies have gone through issues, is essentially your focus, like what, when companies contact you, how can we get liquidity support from, from our banks? How do we get covenant relief? Is, is everyone just punting?
1: So look, there. if you look at – I try to segment things. So the large-cap large, the large cap companies that that are sitting on mountains of cash, put them to the side, right? That's This is not an issue for them. It's really a question of how they – how they position themselves, it's the companies that have leverage, or even the companies that don't have leverage, but have gone through kind of a a, a zero revenue environment or close to it. So if you focus on the companies kind of closer to the core of the nuclear reactor, take the businesses in travel, in the travel space, and F&B, go down the list of the companies directly impacted by COVID. The government learned their lesson from 2009, where the stimulus, I think, in retrospect, everybody agrees wasn't big enough. And so there now, the pendulum has, switched, has has shifted to, we're going to make sure it's big enough. If it's 75, if the balance sheets increase by 75, it'll it'll likely double. And yeah, so there- just, are th-
2: just, just sorry to interrupt you there, but like, I mean, 2009, and, and I mean, obviously you went through that in, in detail from, from when we start, New Century Financial filed for bankruptcy in January of 07. The Bear Stearns, hedge fund, mortgage nonsense, whatever, was like summer 07. We were in a two and a half year cycle. I mean, like, you know, strippers with six interest only loans. Nobody felt bad for them. There was a legitimate moral hazard argument constantly that perpetuated. We shook out a lot of weak hands before it got to systemic over leverage in the banking system. But this time around, you talk to a person like, uh, you know, there was that Monty Burns uh, who Ashford Realty Trusts, And he wrote is like, you know, he wants to sue the Chinese because he basically believes they've they've crippled his hotel business. And he was a a very over leveraged business beforehand. Any single person who had any problems with their business, if you talk to them today, you showed up at somebody's house who like actually can't find a job or, you know, this isn't my fault. You told me I can't work. You forced me to close this. This is what's happening. So like when we talk about like the, the Fed learning their lesson from 09, I think oh nine oh eight oh seven was very reflexive and dynamic, but like it was also balanced in the consistent debate we'd had through up until that point. This is this is the exact opposite, right? Isn't it? It is.
1: Look, I only say in a sense that they learned that you can't limp into this; you got to go strong at it. So there, they threw money at this situation. One, I think, because they were scared. This isn't targeted. I don't think the stimulus packages. Well, I think stemmed some of the tide, right? It was a tourniquet that was put on. So if you take the Triple P program, which is a payroll protection program, there was a lot of uncertainty around it. A lot of, for example, private equity businesses took it and then returned the money because there was no guidance, no guidelines around who should and who should not take it. You look at the Main Street lending program, a lot of guys aren't taking that, right? It's not forgivable debt. You you know, it's onerous terms. You gotta pay it back. So putting the consumer aside, because I think it's a much longer discussion in terms of What's been done to help the consumer? I think for companies, especially the, 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 the SMEs and the middle market, low, lower mid market type companies, those are the ones that I think once the, the, the stimulus stops coming are going to be in real trouble, right? That's, that's who I'd like to see, who I'm curious to see how the, how this damage has, has impacted them. I, I think a third, take Manhattan. I live in Manhattan. I think a third of these restaurants are not going to reopen. I think there's going to be fundamental changes in how corporates run their practices with respect to how they consume real estate and how they consume services around real estate. So I think there's going to be a fundamental shift that, you know, in the long run may be a positive thing, but in the short to intermediate term, I think is going to be very painful, which is why I can't reconcile the, what's happening in the stock market to, you know, you can argue V-shaped recovery all you want, but if you're a dry cleaner, that you know or a nail salon or a barber that lost their lease not going to open again it, it, it just it, it, it it's going to have a material impact on on this economy so which is why i always follow the credit markets not the equity markets when i want to get a sense of uh, you know uh, of what the future looks like
2: okay i mean that's fair enough so like if you rewind that a second and specifically when you're advising for example in this environment like you said there are structural issues and a lot of question marks around a V and if you lost your lease or whatever, do we have a rule of law problem right now? Because this is something I haven't actually gotten a chance to talk with you about. Like, you know, if you're dealing with a company, are you going to the landlord and be like, cause I know you personally sit on other ends of this and you have your own investments and, and whatnot. Like as a tenant, like, I don't want to pay you. Like, are, but at the same time, are you sitting with the company that you're advising and being like, let's go get relief from the landlords.
1: So let's take real estate as a, as a specific example. As far as I know, there's no federal law that's mandated how landlords should behave vis-a-vis their tenants and and prescribing relief to the tenants. But what you've what you've had is massively something 40 percent of commercial and real retail tenants have either not paid their rent or have tried to defer their rent. Th- that number is usually three to five percent, and, and so it, it's so while the law still is intact. It's Lord of the Flies out there uh, because there's no, the system is overwhelmed. I mean, can you imagine what would happen to the, the court system uh, and, and how these things are adjudicated if all of a sudden you've had millions of claims come in from landlords saying their tenants can't pay? So, what happens in these situations is there tends to be a fundamental reset, an out of court reset, where I think landlords just start cutting whatever deal they can. If that space is desirable, I suppose they'll kick out the tenant or begin that process. But again, they have to go through the, the court-ordered process to kick them out, and, and they're all backlogged.
2: And I mean, so, that goes back to the, the labor employment situation as well. You couldn't change the replacement rates, so you come up with a $600 to get the average to 100 You still actually don't have the IT systems to handle the processing of the claims without changing the replacement rates. The system is our financial system
1: is designed to move slowly. We turn cruise ships, and it takes a long time to do that. What happens in this environment is it requires a nimble, kind of rapid fire response, cross sector, and we're just not equipped to do that. Like the the market figures it out eventually. The government is just throwing money at the situation, but the market will figure it out. But it won't be without turmoil and a lot of heartache for especially small the, the small business owners.
2: Makes sense, Daniel. Should we try to get into these? Start with what? Are the, what are the two big ones? Hertz and, and Chesapeake. You know, like you want to just. Have you been following what's going on in the in the equity market,
0: Sam? As yeah, far as these stocks, we,
2: okay. I mean, obviously, it's probably entertaining for you guys. It is indeed.
0: Are you surprised they got the approval to issue shares last week? Like, was that uh a- So yeah, I, I. The short answer is yes.
1: Yes, I'm surprised, but. Look, I, I think it, it'll help to, because I think bankruptcy is such, is this arcane thing in people's minds. I, I think it is helpful to kind of explain the process and why some of this stuff could be happening and why, why it is surprising. So, so take, let's take Hertz. So Hertz has $14 billion of vehicle debt and $6 billion of corporate debt. The, the debt is trading at a massive, massive discount to par. So clearly, the debt is what's called the fulcrum security here. And the way bankruptcy law works in the main is we have this rule of absolute priority. And it's a pretty simple law that basically says no creditor shall see any value unless the creditor ahead of them is made whole. That's what drives bankruptcy, right? That's bankruptcy in in, in one sentence. So when we talk about equity, For the equity to have any value in any of these bankrupt companies that are trading, go go, go through the list. Whether it's Hertz or it's Whiting or it's Pier One or all of these guys that that have had active trading in their equity, they're violating the laws of physics at least as is prescribed by the bankruptcy code. So when you have a Hertz that is clearly the, the equity is clearly worthless, and I could under I'll get to Chesapeake in a second. I could understand if there's something on the horizon in the next month or two that could change the prospects of this business. And then it's just it rockets out of bankruptcy because it doubled its value. But Hertz is not, that's not going to happen with Hertz, right? It's an old stodgy business that's 100% reliant on business travel. In the main,
2: is, is there no argument that if, you, if you're, like somebody was trying to make the case to me that was like, you know, her, uh, Hertz can go in and argue before the bankruptcy judge that c- continue to stall and be like, we're holding our breath. We're not dead. Whoa, this is well, COVID yeah, passes I'll- and we'll make it through. It's a stall tactic.
1: Well, you have to understand also, the second point about this is, the bankruptcy code is in the US, unlike Europe and lots of uh, other jurisdictions around the world, is designed to rehabilitate companies. It's biased towards rehabilitation of companies. Unlike if you, let's say, went to receivership in the UK, those, those bankruptcy codes in the main are, are, are designed to liquidate companies. Under the thesis that it's, it's law, it's survival of the fittest, and it, hey, if you're in bankruptcy, guess what? You didn't survive. And, and then, you know, it's more efficient to liquidate you and let the market. And the receivership laws, it's a liquidation of companies. Here, it's a little bit screwy, right? Because it's, it's debtor-friendly, company-friendly. And so what you've seen is companies that go into bankruptcy go out and then go into bankruptcy again a few years later, go out. So you have these chapter 22s and chapter 33s of these companies that Clearly should not be, clearly should not exist, haven't proven themselves able to compete in the marketplace. But our bankruptcy laws are designed to rehabilitate companies. And so that's what we got. So judges who oversee these bankruptcies are biased towards allowing more flexibility in service of rehabilitating these companies. So when you ask me if I'm surprised that hurts, is effectively allowed to go out and commit fraud, which is what it's doing by placing this equity in the marketplace, knowing under absolute priority that the, the debt is way underwater, they're taking advantage of these Robin Hood type traders or these retail traders that don't understand the fundamentals of how this works. But but the judge is first. Uh, the, the judge uh, the judge in this case is saying, okay, I'm trying to re- help rehabilitate this company and bring in as much value to the estate as possible. So if the stock's trading at whatever, and these guys think they can really place half a billion dollars of equity, let them go at it. They're not worried about, okay, who are the chumps that are buying this stuff? And are they going to get wiped out? That's not the bankruptcy judge's mandate. Uh, if, the, if, if he had like a, an overall concern about the economy, then they'd say, no, you this doesn't make any sense. But, but so in that regard, I think that's why the judge did it, but I'm nevertheless surprised that it happened.
0: You call it a mandate. Is it similar to you mentioned the the priority of bankruptcy? Is that whoever is higher ranked in the debt chain has to be made whole before anybody gets valued? Does the judge, do judges in these cases have leeway to make the common sense adjudication that you or I might? Or are they kind of required to just do their job by the law and say, well, my job is to rehabilitate? The debtors and so go nuts. Well,
1: look, I I think that what the what what was probably argued to the judge is, hey, we need financing to fund this bankruptcy. The debt financing is going to be very expensive. It's likely going to have to prime the existing lenders. And look where the stock is. We think, and Jeffries, I think, is doing the placement here. Um, We're pretty confident that we can go out and place this. And if the equity market wants to buy it, you know, that's not our business. And so we're just going to go out and raise this capital. Whoever buys that equity should write it down to zero day one. I mean, they are buying an option that is way, way, way out of the money that's going to expire in a month or two. But, but I, I think the bankruptcy court's view, and, and again, there's no precedent for this because I, I can't remember, at least since I've been doing this, and I've actually went back and looked at it, where in any instance where a company tried to fund its case with an equity offering, I've never seen it. So this is a, a, a kind of a, a strange new world where- right?
2: So this doesn't have anything to do with like, for example, like, you know, there's always an argument that the people who are long the credit uh, are also have hedged somewhat with short the stock, capital capital structure play. Like, is have they gotten together with management and been like, listen, you know, it's beneficial to us to issue some equity here because
1: we're getting no. some
2: on our short, okay. No, no, so so look,
1: this structure arbitrage has, has existed forever, right? You have these hedge funds, Company goes into bankruptcy, you know, you short the equity, you go long the bond, and in the pre, let's say, Robin Hood, late stage capitalism days, that worked because there's efficiency to it. You didn't have guys, you know, going in and buying the equity and blowing up your trade, which is what's happened now. I mean, I'm sure some of the bounce was the short covering on Hertz and some of these other guys.
2: But, you know,
0: structural
1: well, I mean, arbitrage... Like
2: these are freak show trades, right, though? Because like, yeah. at the end of the day, like you just said, how much debt does Hertz have? The most the equities got into is like $700 million, a billion maybe, tops, versus $20 billion in debt. Like, I, I mean, an- another one where, like, I, I, I've i discussed this, which I follow. Like, you know, we, we talk a lot about the media space on here. Daniel's a big Disney guy. And we've talked about AMC a lot. And you have a lot of people who trade AMC, and I mean AMC's equity has been oscillating. Whether the stock goes from one to seven and back to five to whatever, you know, seven, eight X, it's still like a hundred million to seven hundred million on a company that has five and a half billion in debt outstanding and like four and a half billion in, in off balance sheet lease obligations.
1: Yeah. Look, there's two different things here. One, if you just the trading strategy of the structure arbitrage one only works if the market is somewhat rational. And I'm not sure, I, I, I don't know who's going to employ this strategy now in a world where you have a lot of these, you know, it's a democratization of, of trading and you have platforms that allow people to go in and say, hmm, dollar, you know, stocks a dollar, I think that's cheap, I'm going to buy it. So you have to take that into account. You know, when you talk about the AMCs and other businesses directly impacted by this that have massive obligations, you're just making, again, you're buying an option on the business making a bet that somebody is going to fund the business through this period, so it's kind of fund the trough until it turns around and you could potentially do it on the cheap. But without massive haircuts of debt on these businesses, I just don't see how you make that math on the equity work. You're still way behind a monster amount of obligations. And you're trying to predict what happens in a post-COVID environment. So take airlines or theaters. The airlines have talked about, we're gonna remove the middle seat, right? We're gonna remove the middle seat. Well, okay, that, I think you know that, that'll make travelers more comfortable, but 80% of your costs are fixed, right? Your fuel's fixed, your, your uh, maintenance is fixed, your labor costs are fixed, you still need two pilots. So you have two things happening. You still have massive obligations on these businesses, and you have a structural change in how they generate revenue. And is by definition going to be lower. So take an AMC. You're talking about having people seat in, sit in every other seat or reconfiguring the theaters to allow for more space. Well, that's less revenue. That's less volume.
2: Well, you know what they said, which was funny. They had, they had the I think it was the Cinemark CEO who was on TV and he's like, Well, look, w- w- our typical occupancy on average is 30 percent because, like, you know, Monday through Friday and all those <laughs> screen times, you know, the, the theater is mostly empty. So he's like, All we got to do is, is manage to shift people who are watching together in the weekend more into those other slots.
1: Yeah, look, he's uh, just to make the math work on that. And, and I think what the the equity. See, well, the reason I look at the credit markets versus the the public equity markets is the credit markets are guys that do deep dives. It's less there's no Robin Hood in, in, in the guys that buy bonds, right? There's less democratization of it. You're focused on on finance professionals that 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 look at this stuff and really try to price in the risk. And so you see it in the price of bonds and how they're trading. Where the equity markets, there's so much noise in it that it's, it's hard to kind of put your finger on what the real value should be. And it's impo- you can have a perfectly good thesis that's blown up by all of the noise th- th- that you see in, in trading equities.
2: You no, know, it's, 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 it's crazy.
1: But, but going back to Hertz, look, uh, you know, what's Jeffrey's going to say in the prospectus? Uh, you know, Company is in bankruptcy, bold, underlined, uh, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> right, That's the first time in an equity offering prospectus they're going to have to say, this company is in bankruptcy, and oh, by the way, they also have to say that the the New York Stock Exchange, uh, you know, at the end of May, commenced delisting proceedings. So you're buying a bankrupt stock that's about to be delisted. It's uh, it's full very disclosure. odd. All right, full disclosure. Full disclosure.
0: Well, it's right there in the page one of the prospectus in bold. We are in the process of a reorganization under Chapter Eleven or of Title Eleven or Chapter 11 of the United States Code or Bankruptcy Code, which has caused and may continue to cause our common stock to decrease in value or may render our common stock worthless. So it's in there. I think our premise is that the people who are going to buy this are not the sorts who are reading the prospectus. Obviously. I'm Obviously, in this case, $500 million, if they manage to sell all the shares, is going to waterfall into the the real proceedings, are you seeing other signs of other, you talked about this being unprecedented, but the question is, will this be a precedent? And is it affecting normal, real bankruptcy proceedings because there's this sort of wild, it's market spirits gone to another level?
1: Well, look, for sure, I think others are going to try this. If you have actively traded stock, you know whether Chesapeake and GNC and others go through and the stock continues to trade, and it's as frothy as Hertz was. Is somebody going to argue, Hey, let, let's explore the equity markets because, you know, Hertz set a precedent. I'm sure, I'm sure you will see that. But I think, I, I, I think that it's not substantive. Bankruptcies need to get financed and they typically get financed through debt that primes other debt. It's got to be super secure debt. You're not going to lend to a bankrupt company unless you know you're first in line to get your money out. That's, that's going to continue to be how distressed companies or bankrupt companies continue to get funded here.
0: The only other thing that occurs to me here is there is, Akram has talked about the Fed doubling its balance sheet. It's gone into buying ETFs, bond ETFs, and I haven't paid... Full attention to the Fed as far as what action they're taking now. But
2: I mean, you should, that's just, that's the only thing you should be paying attention to. You should just print the New York uh, Federal Reserve's Treasury purchase schedule, and that's your liquidity indicator. But yes.
0: But the, the question is, I guess just that's probably affecting somebody earlier in the line than Hertz, but does that, are you seeing? companies sort of hanging on i i don't i don't think chesapeake is actually filed yet i think they're reported well, i mean
2: I, th- I i just just to cut cut in here daniel i think uh slam made a good good point where, where he was going earlier reminded me of, like i had been talking to jamie about this kind of like macro situation and and he's like what's a hotel at 50 percent? it's a bankruptcy what's a restaurant at 50 percent occupancy it's a bankruptcy what's an airline like sam was saying with the spacing at 50% or spaced out, it's a bankruptcy. In your mind, Sam, when you look at this, does something change in pricing? Like the airline space, for example. Without a doubt, no matter what happens structurally right now, businesses are not doing travel expenses this year. Anyone I've talked to in any sector, it's just like, that is off the table. No events are being scheduled. We we can watch Vegas and and see the people coming in and getting standing ovations entering the Bellagio, but no one's scheduling a major conference right now for till there is a vaccine. That's off the table. These people, 2020 is a write-off. So does flying get more expensive because I'm not getting subsidized by TNE? I mean, like you know, like in your business, for example, like have you guys just determined, like you travel a lot, like what, what, like how, how does that change?
1: So look, I think there's a broader issue. So clearly nobody's going to be traveling in 2020, or if they do, it's going to be sparse, right? So any event-driven type business, anything that relies on travel and leisure, whether it's airlines, hotels, convention space, the, the, the services that feed into that, all of them are going to be, it's going to be difficult, right? Unless there's a vaccine where things start to normalize. But to me, I look at, so what happens when you have an extended period of trauma like this? Is I think the market takes over. The guys that are highly leveraged are going to go away quicker. Those are the ones that are going to go to bankruptcy. The ones that have little or no leverage, then it's a question of how much cash one way do you have, and can you shelf, can you mothball your business in a way where, come let's say spring of 2021 or whenever there's a, a vaccine, can you can that cocoon burst open and, and you know does a butterfly come out? And so what will happen is the market will solve for that. And, and the market will rationalize sector by sector. So we have way too many airlines. We have too many planes. We have, we have too much competition. And what will happen is, you know, the government threw a ton of money at airlines. So it's hard to see how any of them go bankrupt now, given what they've done. But some are going to go away. We have too many everything. All, so, so the bankruptcy process will cleanse the market. And then what will happen in turn is you're going to have less companies. There's going to be more consolidation by the bigger guys with bigger balance sheets it's going to be less competition. And then you'll see that the benefits of that hyper-competition in terms of keeping prices down, competition for wages, keeping wages up, that's going to go away. So I think there's going to be structural damage, to long-term structural damage to the economy in that regard until this thing cycles through. But this was like a big cleansing moment. Anybody that had five, six, seven times leverage Just can't survive it, and a lot of these guys did in in, at least in the middle market. And anybody that you know, where there was ten competitors in the same space, and they were all fighting, and there was margin compression, half of those guys are going to go. So there's going to be a massive process of rationalization that's going to be painful, and with that goes the jobs. I think you're going to have sustained high unemployment because of that. And and look, the other thing I think psychologically is people figured out that hey. Maybe we didn't need to travel as much, right? Maybe this Zoom and, and, and blue jeans and all these technologies that are improving. Maybe so. I, I, I think that this was a paradigm shift in terms of how folks are going to consume travel. And I, I I just think that even, you know, putting aside all the the tangible structural things, I just think people are shifting the way they're going to do business. I I think commercial real estate is, is going to be in for a, a tough 10 years because people have figured out, Hey, this whole myth of, well, we need to have everybody in one place because of corporate culture and other reasons that kept folks together. Things are just as people are figuring out, no, this is all right. There's, there's an efficiency to working from home, removing the travel to work and all the inefficiencies that come with people congregating. So, look, I'm curious to see how this plays out. I don't have a crystal ball. But I, I, I think in the long run, I don't, again, I can't reconcile what's happening in the equity markets, except for the last two trading sessions, to what I think is going to happen coming out of this. It's just, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm more curious than anything else.
2: You made some good points here where, where like, I, I, if I was to push back at you a little bit, let's take a, a space that, you, that I know you know well and we've talked about Chesapeake, E&P, energy, shale, et cetera. I, I'd read something, I mean, I, I haven't messed with it since frac sand or whatever shorting in 2016 and the 15-16 bust, but we did actually do a podcast recently with uh, Jay Mintzmeyer, who's like, you know, exclusively covers the shipping space. And they've had this crazy storage trade and all this stuff, with the shipping stocks, which got interesting. We had negative oil and all this, this other stuff. But one thing that's interesting about that space is if you, if you look at it closely and i remember the the speech from last year by like before covid they're talking about the 200 billion in debt restructured in the last couple years in, in the sector and the fact that the eqt which was largest natural gas producer in the us ceo basically saying that no industry paradigm shift technological innovation has been worse for the people in the industry than what happened in shale equity holders it's like they lost their shirt several times over. It's just like a recycle. It goes on and on. I, I know you know more about this in, in, in detail from, from, from a process standpoint, but you look at that space and like for someone like me and, and maybe Daniel who aren't in the weeds and we look at it and we're just like, this is just keep, how do we get to producing 14 million barrels when it's got this CapEx treadmill and there isn't a single equity holder making money. And the U.S. government doesn't own the sector. This is private capital. It is a lot that happens in that space. Do they just have to roll over at lower rates and maintain a certain level of production and it's secured by that? Is there some sort of thing in the bankruptcy code that has actually perpetuated this deflationary pressure, essentially speaking, in shale production? Because like, we talk about some areas where there's been excess that's good, but is this one where it's been financialized? Yeah, look,
1: it, it, it's a good question. Uh, look, the, the problem with the, Ch- the Chesapeakes and the Whitings and all of these guys that even before COVID, you know, if you looked at, you know, the distressed logs that we all keep, 80% of it was in the space. There's macroeconomic pressures on this, and obviously the price of oil and their break even cost of operations. They just they were breaching that. So they're all operating at deficit, massive, massive of capex businesses and so it was just unsustainable from from just an operating cash standpoint and then you layer on to that the massive amounts of leverage they had I, I think it's as simple as being over leveraged and it, it's a, it's an issue of your incoming revenues could not meet that your cost of your expenses and, and 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 the capex that you that were required to maintain the business and so here Take all of these guys, whether it's it's upstream, downstream, midstream, especially the upstream guys, the, the numbers haven't worked for a long time. And it's just not sustainable. They just all ran out of gas. And the idea here is, well, how can we survive long enough for there to be a bounce in oil prices? So Chesapeake, $9 billion of debt. And since the start of June, there's a rally in crude and then the stock rallied. And then it came crashing back down. We all knew Chesapeake was going to file for bankruptcy. I'm surprised they, they they were able to hold out this long. There was just no way they would have to get back up to 80 to 100 bucks a barrel for a sustained period of time to make this business uh, to get enough escape velocity to dig out of this mess. They clearly need a massive reduction in debt, and the only way to do that is through the, through the court process. So the guys that were buying the equity were just simply mispriced. The uh, buying the equity in June of Chesapeake. As oil was rallying, we just simply didn't have, didn't understand basic basic mathematics. And looking at okay, where does oil really need to be for how long for for there to be any meaningful equity value here? And there's just this still chasm that exists. So it'll file, the stock will continue to trade, and the stock's going to get wiped out because the bondholders are going to end up equitizing for almost all the equity. I mean, take Whiting. Whiting filed in April. They, there's $2.2 billion of debt that was exchanged for 97% of the equity. So the pre-petition equity holders, shareholders got 3%. And that's pretty normal in bankruptcy, right? They get a tip of the hat or something, you know, they, they're not even entitled to that 3%, but they're given that just to just kind of uh, make them go away. That's what's going to happen in Chesapeake. By the way, that's what's going to happen in Hertz is that the bondholders or the, the debt holders are going to equitize their debt and take all of the equity, and I think that's what people that trade these stocks are missing. I, I, I do want to know. It's not without precedent that companies emerge from equity from bankruptcy with value to their prepetition equity. So American Airlines, when they went to bankruptcy the first time around, um, did the merger with with U.S. Air, and because of that merger and how synergies were calculated, the prepetition equity actually did have value. So there was an event that happened in bankruptcy that allowed for the prepetition equity holders to, to get meaningful equity value. Same thing happened with, with general growth. So it happens every so often, but you can you can price that in. You can pull out your calculator and do the, do the math on that. Everything else, whoever's listening to this, I would encourage them to, uh, unless they're employing some sophisticated structural arb strategy, don't buy bankrupt <laughs> don't buy bankrupt stock equity.
0: That is great stock advice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, ne- I, I <laughs> nothing on here is investment advice. Uh, I never, <laughs> I, I know, ne- yeah, I, I ne- yeah,
1: I never thought I'd have to say that. Like, I never thought I
0: had to say that.
1: It's like when I told my son, "Don't put your finger on that flame because it will hurt." Like, you, like you just, it's just a, uh, it's just very odd. It's, it's, and it's unfortunate to see a lot of people losing a lot of money because they're just chasing the shiny object of this low stock price for. A iconic name, like it's so cheap, I gotta buy it.
2: So, is there actually like an unhealthy issue? I mean, that was kind of a little bit where I was going, where I, I maybe we we missed kind of that point where with like what's happened in the energy space, like like you said, the, the system is kind of designed to to rehabilitate, but like at what point does rehabilitation? Just be like the zombie element, keeping the dead alive. I look at an AMC, and, and I I've seen what's going on with it, and I'm like, look, I I understand Chapter Eleven is not is is not Chapter Seven. It's not liquidation. What perpetuates holding on, like AMC raised five hundred like five hundred million in liquidity. They have a foreign shareholder, Chinese. Uh, it's complicated issues. They control seventy five percent. You know, Silver Lake had you know kind of a disastrous investment in there. They're very smart firm. You look at it and you're like, why isn't this thing just like, why aren't we finishing it with it here? Why is this not like, all right, this needs a debt reduction? Like, why does it get pushed out?
1: Well, look, again, I go to the US model versus the European model, right? It it, it is that it it, it should be, someone should come in and say, guys, okay, there's a a fundamental flaw here and let's fix it once and for all. The other problem is there's too much, quote unquote, rescue capital out there. There's too much capital that's been raised to go in and specifically target these situations. And so if you could come in and invest a slug of pref that has a 2 or 3x liquidation preference, prime all of the other lenders, well, then you just pile on top and everybody else gets pushed out. So there's there's a lot at play here as to why... This keeps getting perpetuated. Look, this is not to diminish that uh, a thesis that someone may have as to why this thing is going to turn around and how they're pricing and their risk. But you have a, a combination of a system that won't allow things to die, like the natural order of things can't prevail here. And you have a, a market awash in rescue capital that's ready to kind of be deployed into, in these situations. And who ends up getting killed here is always obviously the equity. And the junior the junior bondholders the unsecured guys.
0: do you think this is I guess first of all you mentioned freezing perfectly good companies earlier because we're talking about unhealthy sectors the shale as you said, Chesapeake it hurts you can argue that that's a business that would have been impaired had a decent amount of debt and just not you know it had threats from Uber it's AMC also I think had bankruptcy, talk around it well before COVID. Do you have an example yet of a company that you think, a public company you think that shouldn't have, if I can use that phrase, uh, and will file? I, or If you're not comfortable saying that, is that something that we should be watching for in the quarters to come?
1: Yeah, look, um, I, I have to be careful about saying specific names here, just given kind of what we're doing. But, but yeah, look, I, I think that there's companies that, again, were perfectly healthy in February that just can't sustain a prolonged zero-revenue environment or, or 90% reduction or 80% reduction. right? There isn't enough government stimulus to, to bail them out, and you can't fund your your payroll. you you, you got to file. So I think you're going to see a wave of them come in. I mean, you saw, what's it called this morning? 24 seven fitness. 24 right? seven. Yeah. A lot of those guys, like 24 seven fitness, I assure you would not have filed had it not been for COVID there, there's probably my, my, guess is when it's all said and done, you know, you'll have, you know, a few hundred that end up having to file. You, you just, it, it's just the law of gravity. And the first ones to go, it, it's like the, you know, the, the, the folks that are kind of elderly with pre-existing conditions were the ones most susceptible to COVID the, the actual virus. Well, here the pre-existing condition is high debt or thin operating margins. If you had high debt, you're just not going to have enough cash runway, or can't borrow your way out of the problem to get out the other side. And if you had thin thin margins to begin with, you're just you're you're not going to be able to figure out how to marshal enough cash to get you through. I mean, even after you furloughed all your employees and try to cocoon you know mothball the business, you you still you know a lot of these guys had two to three months of runway. The Triple P program helped a little bit. You know, some people are taking Main Street lending. Unless the the, the government comes out with another stimulus program, you're going to see... I mean, they're going to. And, and look, this is, this is the rationalization I was talking about earlier, is a lot of these companies that were either having difficulty competing or were highly leveraged are going to get wiped. And you're going to see the bigger guys consolidate spaces. And then you're just going to have less competition in the short to intermediate term, which is going to have an impact on... On prices and consumer spending on unemployment. On, on, on
2: on so, I mean, okay, so philosophically, then, uh, you, you're actually touching on something that's interesting. You're talking about companies with margins and you're talking about companies that were high debt. What about stock buybacks? Because, I mean, on two ends of, of the equation when it comes to the airlines, on one side, it's like, oh, they didn't save for a rainy day. But then, you know, I've talked to, to some friends, one notable one, Captain Twilio, who counter argue that airlines should be paying out. As much as possible. A bad recession puts them under. 9/11 puts them under. There's nothing wrong with their buyback strategy, uh, short of reinvesting excess cash flow in developing vaccines on demand for coronaviruses. There, there was nothing they could have done. So, like, it's absolutely asinine in, in a capitalistic environment to be faulting them for not having the ability to weather two months of no revenue. No airline can weather no revenue.
1: Well, well, uh, I disagree with that. So if you look at the history of airlines, the government, airlines are the first to get, I, I think you have to price in government support for airlines whenever something goes wrong. They got a massive stimulus package back in, in 08. They got a massive one now. They were the ones that were first protected. And so you had airlines now that arguably are doing from a, just from a cash, from a cash standpoint, have had most of their losses. Offset. So, using it for an airline that has massive, massive fixed cost structure and a high, high operating leverage hurdle, using any liquidity to buy back stock is insane to me. There's so many things that go bump in the night in an airline. Unless you have load factors in the low to mid 70s, you know your airline is struggling. In the long run, airlines have never made money, right? You can make money in, in windows, right? If, so there's so many shocks that, that can that can hit the airline space you do you want to have as much liquidity as possible to survive it until the, the cavalry the, the cavalry comes in the government stimulus and so yeah I, I don't I, I've heard that argument before for the airline and other spaces and I just don't buy it I just think stock buybacks are a horribly inefficient way use of capital give that money back to your investors. You want to issue dividends, fine, but using it to repurchase your stock is nuts to me.
0: It's early to say, but are you seeing any signs of we are we were already towards the end of the cycle? It was a cycle of a lot of share buybacks, activist campaigns, run lean—that whole philosophy of maximizing your return on equity, etc. Do you? Maybe this is just a cyclical thing. Maybe in oh9 and '10 and '11 we were all. Believers in keep a Fort Knox balance sheet, and then all of a sudden that fades as you get further and further away from the trauma. But are you seeing any, or do you have any thoughts on whether companies are going to react to that sort of comeuppance that you're describing for airline?
1: Yeah. Look. I, look. I, I think in, in general, you know, commercial institutional memory is very you know, is is very short. But people do react to this, you know, I think you're going to have less leverage. I think that's in part going to be driven by less lending. Lenders are not going to to go away from contract like covenant like type deals. And so you're going to have lower leverage coming out of the box, which is what you saw in 2009. You saw average leverage go down to three and a half and then started slowly but surely creeping up until, you know, we're almost at five now. So you'll, you'll, you'll see that and you'll see people kind of streamline. A lot of these employees that were furloughed just aren't coming back because companies realized they were bloated, right? So you'll see that. But then, you know, institutional memory is short and it'll start creeping back up and creeping back up and then, and then we'll normalize again. I, I think behavior will change for sure, at least in the short run. Depending on how bad this is, uh, I, I don't, you know, uh, if, if if history's history is any guide, and if you look at prior cycles, people people forget about things, you know. If there's a if there's a vaccine in February of next year, this this will be, you know, people forget about COVID altogether, and you know, it'll it'll go back to where we were. Uh, I, I think fairly quickly. But guys, I'm going to have to run here.
2: No problem. Yeah, that, was, that was more than enough. Thank you. That was, that was excellent.
0: Yeah, really fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for joining
1: us. My, my pleasure, guys. All right, take care. Take care. Bye right, bye-bye.
0: Disclosures quickly, I'm long Disney, which Akram brought up, though I'm not a big Disney guy the way he said it. No positions for Akram or Sam. Also, Akram mentioned Monty Burns, but meant Monty Bennett of Ashford Company's great Freudian slip. Thank you so much to Sam Zagayer for joining us. Please subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Leave a review and share with a friend. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.